You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, this is Chrissy Beltran, and I am so excited to share episode 19 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast with you today. This episode is going to address a huge challenge that coaches face when working with teachers, and that is coaching classroom management. Coaching teachers in classroom management can be really stressful, and it can feel like every step you take is a misstep, is the wrong direction. So today we're sitting down with Haley of Teaching with Haley O'Connor to talk classroom management. Thank you for being here, Haley. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I am too. I think this is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, Can you introduce yourself and your educational background? Absolutely. So like Chrissy said, my name is Haley O'Connor. I live in Dallas, Texas. I taught third grade and first grade for about six years before I um, moved into more of a consulting role and started developing some curriculum. Currently, I do that and I also have a toddler at home. So I'm every day thinking a lot about behavior management. Um, When I was in the classroom, my second year, I ended up having about a 50-50 ratio of kids on IEPs and kids that weren't. And for me that year, most of the IEPs included some sort of behavior need. Um, I had a lot of autism. I had a couple kiddos that were ID. And so I had to get super creative in supporting them. And that's where my passion for, um, you know, classroom management and just helping our students be successful in that way came from. And then after that year, every single year after that, I just was kind of the go-to teacher for kids who needed extra support, who needed a strong teacher relationship. Um, you know, just those, those kiddos that needed someone to love on them and see the positive. So that's kind of where it grew from. And then since then, I've just really embrace that side and try to come up with as many resources as I could for teachers to support classroom community and building relationships because we know when we have strong relationships, everything else is much easier. Yes. And that actually is one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about. What are some best practices in classroom management that really need to be in place to create a community of learners? And I think, I mean, relationships is obviously huge. Yeah. Um, But for a lot of people, when you say relationships, they don't really even know what that means. So breaking it down even more, to me, it means one-on-one time with every kid as often as you can. Um, I didn't ever do this, but I know a lot of teachers that have lunch at the beginning of the year. You just make a calendar and have lunch with one student every single day. For me, I built it into my day more. Um, You know, but as you're walking around assessing student learning, you know, sit down with them and just chat with them about what's going on. I always made sure I was available during recess and I always had little ones who came up and would chat with me. So to me, those relationships happen, you know, in those small moments where we're taking time out of our busyness, out of the other 21 kids to sit down with one kid and just have a conversation. Actually just did a blog post on the two by 10 strategy. And it's basically saying if you spend two minutes Every day for 10 days with your most challenging students, you will see huge growth. Um, I learned about it when I was teaching, and I think it's super effective. So if you don't know how to start building relationships, just take two minutes every day for 10 days with the student who gives you the most trouble um, and just spend time talking with them about 
life. It's not a time to talk about consequences. It's not a time to talk about, you know, you didn't make great choices yesterday. It's just a time to get to know them and interact and build that relationship. I Does love that. Make sense? Yeah, that's okay. exciting. I mean, it, it seems so simple and obvious, but being really deliberate about it. Right. You know, I think that's, that could be really impactful. I think that's what's so important about this whole conversation is just being intentional because when we're not, um, you know, weeks pass, months pass, and we haven't connected with a student and all of a sudden their behaviors have escalated. So you have to build it into your day, just like you build higher order thinking questions, just like you build read alouds into your day. You have to build time to build relationships. Yeah. Cause I think about, um, students that I had that were especially challenging for me to figure out how to work with them. And, I would work with them frequently because they were in my small group and they were in my target group. And so I met with them all the time, but was it that one-on-one time that was about just them as a person? Probably not enough, you know, that's probably what. And typically when we have students who are exhibiting challenging behavior, we do spend time talking with them, but it's framed around that behavior. You know, typically it's not like a super positive conversation. Um, So stepping out of that and talking to them as a kid and not a kid who just did X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I love that. So are there any other best practices in management that need to be in place in addition to? Absolutely. Um, I think morning meetings is a huge starting point to just build strong classroom community. And it's an easy way to build in that intentional time about talking about expectations. This is how we're going to handle things. And then for me, we had morning meeting, but we also had classroom meetings whenever we needed them. If there was, you know, a tiff going on between multiple kids, that's a great time to Let's stop what we're doing, come to the carpet for five minutes and chat about it. We also had follow-up meetings at the end of the day where we would, you know, whatever our target skill for social emotional was, you know, tell me about a time that you really had to show self-control today or who has an example of being respectful. So we had multiple class meetings. Um, I think implementing natural consequences is huge. We can talk more about that later. But if I had to think of the most important best practice that's not implemented well, it would be consequences. Um, and so making sure that we're our consequences make sense, they're age appropriate, and they're respectful is huge. Um, and then using nonverbal cues is a really big piece, making sure that you're reminding students what's expected without calling them out yes. is super important. And it's hard to do and it takes time. And that's where coaches can come in and kind of model and also um, show you how often you're calling out a student. It's really easy to not realize. And then you can have someone come in and they can say, you know, you said his name 12 times during that read aloud. How would you feel as a grown-up? So that's, I think, a really important role coaches can take is letting teachers see what's happening um, so they have a better grasp of how to make it better. I like that a lot. And I, I think you're so right about nonverbal communication. I used to use a lot of nonverbal communication in the classroom. And then whenever I started coaching, I don't think I realized how much of my day was accomplished without talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even like to remind kids in advance of, of something, what was expected of them. And we, you yeah. know, very quickly you do your little gestures or whatever. And they, they just, it just sticks, you know? And so, so it's so purposeful and it's so quick that you, sometimes it's hard to draw attention to that, to a teacher to say, this is why I'm doing this. This is a really big deal. It looks like a very small thing, but it's a big deal. Yeah. So one, that just made me think of an example. Um, I had a little one 
we'll call her Allie. I won't use her real name, but she had autism and she was, she perseverated a lot, which means she focused a lot on, am I being good? Am I being good? And, and so she had a little card that had a green smiley face and, you know, 99% of the time she was good and, and she had her little card out. And if I ever had to flip it, she knew she needed to fix something, okay. but that was like a super easy nonverbal way for me to communicate with her that she was doing what she was supposed to do. Yeah. And so that she didn't have to constantly wonder, um, am I going to get in trouble? Yeah. Am I going to get in trouble? That's a great way to do it too. And because kids do, they do get stuck on things, especially oh, yeah. on the autism spectrum. So yeah, that's awesome. So what are some of the common mistakes or poor practices that keep teachers from creating a community? And you mentioned inappropriate consequences. Yeah. So let's dive into that one a little bit more. Um, I think so. Oh, sorry. Um, When we're talking about natural consequences, to me, what what that means is, will this fix the problem? So if you have a student who's, um, let's say, destroying, like I had this little guy who used to love to take scissors and cut pink erasers, like he would just shred them. Mm -hmm. And so 10 years ago, what would have happened in most classrooms is he would have walked laps at recess. Mm -hmm. Um, He would have had to call his mom, but that doesn't really fix the problem. Um, You know, what does fix the problem is, you know, I'm really disappointed that you broke this supply. So now I need you to put it back together. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I'm going to have to use school money to buy a new eraser. So I'm going to need you to spend five minutes clean up this room so the custodian doesn't have to, so we get that money back. So Mm -hmm. tying the consequence to the behavior is hugely important. And it's something that I don't see very often. Um, Probably the biggest thing that makes me cringe is walking laps at recess and taking lunch away. When we think about kids who are struggling with behavior, what times of the day are probably most important to them? And it's being social with their friends, having a little bit of freedom, you know, and then recess where they can either get out their energy or just talk freely. Um, And so often that's teachers go to, to pull those two things. And that's really what they need the most. The only caveat to that for me is if I had a student who was being unkind at lunch, then it would make sense for me to say, you know, you've hurt a lot of the friends at our classroom today. You're going to have to sit by yourself because you can't be safe, but we can try again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So if a behavior happens at lunch or if it happens at recess, you might have to use that, but it doesn't make sense for a behavior that happened at nine o'clock for them to then lose recess at one o'clock. Right. Especially, I think the younger you go, absolutely. The younger the kids are, the more closely that consequence has to be tied to the action. Like in timeframe, time-wise. Right. Um, something else that makes me really sad is teachers that just rely on parents to handle all the behavior. So, you know, you just write a note in their folder and their binder and you assume that the parents are going to take care of it. And, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. One of them, you have no idea what's going on at home. Um, maybe parents are working multiple jobs. Maybe they're already seeing that behavior at home and they don't know what to do about it. Um, that was my mom, (laughs) my youngest brother really he would go to school and he was, a, you know, quote, a good kid, right? He was, he, and he still is, but he was, he just had like so much anxiety about completing his work because he thought he, if he made a mistake, he wouldn't try. So his teachers looked at that as um, like actual resistance, like refusing new work, yeah, non-compliant, right? Which I mean, technically, yes, he was not complying with directions and we understood that. But my mom was like, I don't know what else to tell you. Right. 
he's not here whenever he's not complying. He's with you. So I don't, I mean, really the truth was he didn't have a relationship with those teachers. He felt terrible about himself at school. So he didn't want to try and fail. And that reminds me of something else where so often we tag behaviors as defiance when like, I would say almost never, especially when you're talking about kinder, first grade, second grade students, they're not doing it just to make us mad. They're doing it because they need attention. They're hurt. They're right. anxious. Like you said, um, they don't understand the content. So one of the first things that's, that we need to do as teachers, when we have a recurring behavior is really figure out what that function is because it's almost always not just defiance. There's a reason behind it. And if we can address their reason, um, we're going to get a lot farther fixing that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. If you understand the reason for something, you can actually try to figure out what to do. Yeah. About it. If you don't understand why it's happening, then you're just kind of like throwing things at it and hoping it gets better. Yeah. Which we've all done at some point because we couldn't figure course. it out. But yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the other one that teachers always assume is, well, they just want their peers' attention. Um, and maybe they do. You know, attention seeking is a, is a big piece of all <laughs> of our lives. Um, but typically <laughs> that's, that's because they're trying to balance out a negative interaction they just had or, you know, because we publicly shamed them. And now they're trying to build, you know, their rapport back up. So even attention seeking, it's typically connected to something else. Yeah, sure. Um, Some other, you know, mistakes that you asked about, I would say public correction is huge. Um, And also just any sort of public behavior tracking. And I've done blog posts about this. I've shared, but it can be really emotional for teachers to admit that a color chart is probably not the most effective way of classroom management. Mm-hmm. I I was a great kid. I had a lot of fear growing up. And so I did not mess up. And I still mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. I still remember changing my color in second grade oh, and like okay. how yeah. traumatic that was for me. Um, and I got in a lot of trouble at home mm-hmm. way, way more than I needed to mm-hmm. because I never got my color changed, you know? So I would plead with teachers, please look at that behavior chart and really think about, is this what's best? Um, even if it goes up, you know, I know the new thing is when we were growing up, we had red, yellow, green. Well, now we added like blue and purple, Mm -hmm. um, to make excellent choices. And I did that in my classroom, but looking back, it's still, it's still going to be the same four kids that are on red every day. And it's still going to be the same four kids that move up to purple every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I think class dojo, can be used effectively. I never used it negative. So we only use it as a way to keep track mm-hmm. um, of positive behaviors. It was our class currency. I never used it as like you lost a point. Mm-hmm. But when we have it up on the screen and we, you know, kids lose points, that's not any better than moving your clip down to red. Um, I have found that there are some students that do really, really well with that sort of tracking. So just getting a personal one for their desk. No, that's a good idea. Makes it way more respectful. Um, some parents, and if you have a kid on a BIP or an IEP, you mm-hmm. may have to daily track their behavior. That may be part of the data that you collect. So having a chart like that can be helpful, but it should be on their desk. And if they have to, you know, move their color, it's it's private. It happens when no one else can see. Um, what I see a lot of is, okay, let's sign up for recess. And then you know, you have Frankie doing a cartwheel, Frankie, go move your clip. That's not effective. Um, what needs to happen is, Hey, Frankie, can you come here, bud? You know, we're going to have to move your clip because of the choice that you just made. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So while I don't ever think that's the best choice, if you need to do a some sort of like behavior tracking chart, you know, you have to do it in private. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing that I wanted to say, and I think you probably have some conversation about this too, is using reading and writing as a consequence. Oh yeah. Um, what about? Yeah. Um, old school stuff. I'm sorry, but that is, we need to move beyond that guys. That should not even be a conversation we have to have anymore. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I see it, especially during centers, um, or like workstation time where you lose your center privilege. All you can do now is read to yourself. Right. But first of all, that's the worst. And a lot of times our kids who are not being successful in centers, it's probably because the content is too hard. So now we're giving them books that are too hard and they're just supposed to sit there for 30 minutes. Right. Um, so just stop doing that. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree with that completely. We don't want to have a negative connotation with something we want them to love. And you can't use it as a punishment and then hope that it's a reward. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work for both. Yeah. And I think writing can be super effective if you pose it as journaling, but it has to be like a choice that they make. So if they um, need to journal about something that happened, they could choose to talk with you about it. They could choose to write. So that's different than just like, you lose the privilege, you need to go write. That's more of, that's not so much a consequence as like a, you're working towards a solution. You're helping them solve problems. You're helping them kind of maybe, you know, deescalate or. Yeah. It's a strategy. strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For sure. You know, one thing that I've seen a lot is inconsistent response to misbehavior. Oh yeah. That one just, it gets me because I would go into classrooms sometimes and I, and I mean, it happens. We've all, and we've probably all done this. We probably should preface this whole conversation with, if there is a mistake to be made, we've, I've, I've made all of them. Absolutely. You know, we all have. And the, I mean, the longer you teach, the more mistakes you will have made and, but also the more progress you've made. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. So I've, no, I've, I've done this, I'm sure. And I can even think of individual students that I probably did this with that I still feel guilty about, right? 10, 15 yeah. later. But I remember going to classrooms and I would see a teacher who had, that one student had just worn through whatever patience that teacher had for them. And that was it. And they were at a point now where any movement, that kid blinked and the teacher was like, what are you doing? And it was like other kids could literally be up walking around the room during a read aloud, sharpening their pencils, just leaving the room to go to the bathroom without getting the pass, you know, poking their neighbor, giggling, tearing paper up, you know, cutting up erasers. But that one kid who's already reached his max of patience for the year, I guess, is just that's the one that gets singled out every time. And that that is such a hard thing to correct because teachers don't even realize they're doing it at first. So to when I hear you say that one thing that might be effective is just like, Hey, I noticed, um, Aiden was really challenging today. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So maybe, I don't know, framing it that way would help, but yeah, it's uh, anybody would get super defensive. If someone comes in and is like, Hey, you were really mean to that kid. (laughs) I mean, no one wants to hear that. No, Um, we we do have a conscience and we do feel guilty and we feel terrible whenever we've done things. Some of us are defensive in response to that. That's our natural response is no, that's not true. You don't understand what he's doing in here. Yeah. And that's such a powerful thing that a coach can do though, because you're not there for the other, um, you know, week that this has been going on. So you can come in and just see a snapshot. And in that snapshot, you can say like, okay, that was, you know, it's really not balanced in the way that you're responding to these different kids. Right. You know, a video would be really helpful and not every Absolutely. teacher likes to record themselves teaching. And it might be something that maybe you don't watch. Maybe they watch it and just debrief with you if that's uh-huh. a really sensitive area for them. Um, but at least that's a start. So if you have them record their teaching and they can actually see what's happening in the classroom, 
that all kids, that it's chaos, but that one child is the one that you're, you're, you know, focused, the fixating on. Yeah. But if they see it themselves, that might be helpful. So some like thoughtful questions that they could use as a guide could help them to kind of analyze that. Um, one of the most powerful things a, te- uh, a coach did for me, she was actually a district behavior coach, but I had a student that had run his kindergarten teacher into the ground. And by October, I had my hands in the air, like, I need help. I don't know what to do with this kid. And so she actually came in for like two hours and just did data tracking for me. Yeah. Um, and that was huge. So are you familiar with ABC charts? No, I don't think so. Okay. So it's antecedent behavior consequence. It's just a super quick way to track behaviors. Um, I like having them pre-filled out because typically most antecedents, um, that's what comes before. There's only so many of them. Like usually it's a transition, Mm -hmm. being told no, you know, needing new supplies, but she just tracked everything that was happening. And it was super helpful on multiple levels. One, because when I went in, to our RTI meeting, I had data to show these behaviors are happening every 15 minutes. Like this is not something I'm making up, but it also allowed me to see like, okay, they're always happening around a transition. So I need to prepare him more for Mm -hmm. a transition. And, you know, we tell teachers all the time, like you need to collect data, but when are they supposed to do that? Right. It's very, it's very unnatural. (laughs) To stop yeah. your, let me make a mark here because something just happened. I mean, well, and then especially if you're trying to be respectful and you don't yes. want your entire class to know that you're making a mark because so and so, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's something super helpful for coaches to do. Yeah. It doesn't take any work on you guys's part. Just come in for thirty minutes mm-hmm. and track some data, um, and then really figure out. A lot of times, I found it was other kids instigating. If I if they knew I had a little guy who was, you know quick to fire off. Um, I might not always notice the kids that I have that are poking him with the pencil or tapping their desk. Cause I'm so focused on the little guy that's causing all this ruckus, but a second person can come in and say, well, actually, you know, his table mates weren't sharing their supplies with him. And that's why he escalated. Right. That actually happened to me recently. I was coaching in a classroom, not for behavior, but you know, it's all, if the behavior's not in place, nothing happens. Oh yeah. It's all connected. (laughs) Yeah. And so the teacher was doing the lesson and then one student just continued to escalate, escalate, escalate. And it just, it got pretty out of hand. And she was, she was like positioning him in one place. Like, you know, you stay here, you're going to work on this. They were moving to centers at at the time. And as soon as her back was turned, another student started mean mugging the student who had been causing the ruckus, right? And he was making ugly faces at him. So whenever she turned back, the student who originally caused the problem, now he's pushing the one who was making right. faces at him. So she turns around and sees out of nowhere, this child is pushing another child when she just told him to sit down and do his center. Yep. And she was like, what is going on? And I was like, just, you need to know. <laughs> he was, yeah. I'm not saying he's not responsible for his actions, but you need to know what's going on so that you can right. address the actual root of the problem. And that's why I think really being mindful of our own attitude towards the kids in our classroom because they pick up on it. And if you have a kid that it's really obvious that you're just going to not defend him and that you just don't really like him, the other kids are really going to pick up on that and all feed into it. Um, So it's just hugely important that we're being mindful of the way that we perceive our kids. And if you have a student that is you've just, it's really hard for you to connect with. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when you need help. And I think as coaches, you can say like, there is no judgment here. And we've all been there. We've all had a kid that we just cannot connect with. And when you get to that point, 
please come to me and we will solve this. We will work together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, being able to say, I just don't like him today is sometimes saying that to a coach who can help you is the only way you're going to be able to move forward. Um, cause it's not acceptable to stay in that place. Right. Um, you know, we can't teach effectively when we feel that way, but we do feel that way. So let's coaches can be that safe spot to really work through those feelings. And now I think if we, we learn so much about trauma as teachers, things can happen in the classroom that are really triggering. And so they need a place to be able to safely say like, this is really triggering to me. And this makes me really frustrated. And I feel like I'm not handling it appropriately. Can you help me? Um, And so I know you probably share so much on this podcast about how coaches can be a safe space, but just like we need to be safe places for our teachers, um, coaches need to be that safe place. I'm sorry, just like teachers need to be a safe place for their kids. Coaches need to offer that same thing that you're not going to get in trouble when you come to me. I'm not going to run to the principal and say, right, like, I want to help you with this. Hey coaches, I'm just going to pop in here really fast because I want to share something with you that I am so excited about. My course for elementary literacy coaches, The Confident Literacy Coach, is live. It's up and running and you can get access to it right now. So here's the deal. When I started out as a coach, I struggled. I had trouble defining my role and communicating it with teachers and administration. And I honestly didn't even know that was something I was going to have to do. I dreaded PLC days because getting my teachers to collaborate, to speak the same language and create lesson plans together was a total nightmare. And I was so stressed out by modeling and co-teaching in classrooms that I actually avoided it for a long time. It was not a happy time for me, (laughs) but things got so much better. I figured out processes to help my teams of teachers work together. I focused on best practices in reading and writing and identified some high impact strategies to support alignment on my campus. And I began to spend more time in classrooms after I planned thoroughly with teachers before lessons. Basically, I started coaching with confidence. I've collected all the processes and tools that I used to do this work, and I've put it all together in one place, so you can coach with confidence too. The Confident Literacy Coach is your one-stop shop for everything literacy coaching in elementary school. You'll learn how to define your role and communicate it to your administrator, what best practices you should spend your time on, and my process for collaborative planning, plus so much more that will take your coaching life from frustrated and overwhelmed to effective and confident. You can check it out at Buzzing with Miss B.com. Just click the Confident Literacy Coach at the bottom of the latest post and you'll learn exactly what's in the course and why it will change your coaching for the better. I can't wait to see you there. So how does classroom layout or design support effective management? Uh, so this is a little bit of a funny question for me because I live in chaos and my caution was always like just chaos. And so looking back, I think having a organized classroom can be huge in helping students be successful. Mm -hmm. But as a type B teacher who really struggles to keep things in order, you know, there's other things we can do. I think as far as classroom layout, um, the first thing is using proximity control. So if you have those kids that just need a little bit extra support, they should really be near you all the time. Um, My, when I had a read aloud, my entire first row was a bunch of little, little turkeys (laughs) that be right there by me. and you might think, oh, well, isn't Turkey A going to instigate Turkey B? Probably not when they're six feet away from, or, you know, six <laughs> inches away from you. And also where your teacher desk is, having them mm-hmm. sit near you. I think that could be huge. Um, just looking at your classroom, what does it promote? Does it promote 
a family? Does it promote group work? Does it promote we're all in this together? Does it promote like we're all little islands? Um, So even the way that you arrange your desks can be, I always just did groups of four and five. Um, For seven years in teaching, I had groups of four and five. Sometimes it was circle tables. Sometimes it was like actual desks, but that's what worked well for me. I reserved like pulling desks apart for when as an entire class, we needed to reset. So typically about once a year, things have just gotten wild (laughs) and we just need a reset. That's when we, you know, we're not going to be able to sit by with our friends today. We're going to pull our desks apart just so we go back over the rules and um, remember how, you know, what the expectations are. Um, And then offering areas in your classroom that have less stimuli. So a lot of people call it like a cool down area, a calm down area. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Even if you just have a little pillow off to the corner where students can go and cool down. Um, It's not a timeout space. Please don't ever say go to the cool down area. Uh Once we use it as a consequence, it loses all of its power. Mm -hmm. But if you have a student who does escalate or who, you know, you can say like, hey, do you think that you might want to get a drink of water? Maybe go sit in the cool down area. Offering it as an option is totally okay. Um, And then also just Looking at your classroom layout and thinking about transitions, is it easy for kids to get the supplies they need? Is it easy for them to get to line up? If they're having to hop over desks, they're probably not going to push their chair in. They're going to want to hop over the desk, you know? So (laughs) making sure things are smooth, clear pathways, having those areas, and then also having clear expectations for what areas should look like. We always have like backpack hangers in our room. And if I did not remind us multiple times a week, you know, we hang our backpacks up, they're zipped up very quickly. You have 25 backpacks on the ground that kids are going to now want to throw at each other. They're going to slip on. It's going to become a huge thing. So just making sure that things are tidy goes a long way. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the point you made about having like my problem, I'm not, I'm not messy per se, but I have too much crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's my podcast. I can say crap if I yeah. want. Um, I just had too much crap. And so that was something that over time I had to really minimize what I decided to put out, what I decided to put up, because my instinct is to fill every space. Yeah. Something that I love. And that's not gonna work. <laughs> so whenever you have too much stuff in your room, there's too many things going on that can be really overstimulating to kids. Absolutely. To more of a minimal approach. And um and one easy thing to do is to look at the, the outlines of things, the lines of things. So if you look at like your bulletin board, if you have anything sticking out beyond the frame, it's like it's that, even that in itself makes it look messy and cluttered. Oh, that's a good point. I, you know, it, whenever somebody pointed that out to me, I thought that is that makes so much sense. Like they having, you know, even in your own home, sometimes I'm like, wow, this is really bothering me. And that's why it feels cluttered because there's like a straight line there and I've messed it all up. Uh-huh. Now there's an edge that's framing something and now that frame is gone. That's so, so true. Organized visual information and now it's just too much. Yeah. So that's one thing that can be done that's easy to do. And I think the walls, you know, play a huge role in that. Are your, your walls like covered floor ceiling in right. like you said, crap? Like yes. or do you have a few designated anchor charts? You know, maybe a few like exemplars of student work, and then the rest is blank space because we know that even as grownups, like we work well with blank space and we work well when things are, everything has a home. And so even, but for us, like who are, that doesn't come natural to tips like that, 
are right. super helpful. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I can't look at his face and be like, ooh, I know how to organize that. Like that is just not my gifting. I can um, organize it, but I'll put, I'll be like, and I can fit one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> and now I've made space for this. <laughs> That's you awesome. Know, I might do that. My mother's um, boyfriend found a, like a shelf, one of those vertical shelves that has like front facing book. You could put front facing books on uh-huh. and they found it and they painted it. And it's really, and I'm like, where am I going to stick this? Like, <laughs> in this house? I just had to figure out where, but you know, I have to move something else out and I just right. don't do it. So I know that's my natural inclination that I have to fight. <laughs> well, and it's just crazy what having a super overstimulating classroom can do, you know, to kids and right. some of the ones getting into a little bit of touchy territory, but some of the ones I see on Instagram that are just decorated um, from floor to ceiling, they're beautiful. Um, but I don't know that that kids and, you know, anchor charts with like puns, kids don't even, um, like trying to make each anchor chart super quirky and beautiful. And like, that's not what an anchor chart is. They're functional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you look on the walls and there's 37 different fonts and it's just, it can get really crazy. And even if it's something is like aesthetically pleasing, is that what's best for our kids and especially yeah. for our struggling students? Things need to be purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. Too much stuff can be overwhelming. I mean, I've seen charts hanging from the ceiling. I've yeah. seen, you know, and it's after a certain point, who's using any of these things? They're well, and you have to balance that because you might have admin or the district saying like, we want to see your learning. And I was at a school once that like, if it wasn't on the walls, it wasn't happening, you uh -huh. know? And so they wanted to see our learning. So how do you balance? Right. Well, we've been in school for 31 weeks. You want to see 31 right. weeks of learning? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's hard, but I think also when your admin comes to you and say, you know, and says that that's a really easy thing to find research or ask your coach, like, Hey, can you help me find some research about mm -hmm. what's best for kids on the walls? Because just because yeah. your admin is asking for it does not mean it's what's best. And that's true. I, you know, I think that sometimes teachers misinterpret that message as well, because we would say you're, you should, we should be able to see your learning, but not everything you ever learned. Right. That's not the same. You know, so I think that I know that I've seen it both ways where some, sometimes admins, like we want to see everything. Yeah. And then sometimes you're like, no, we need to see what's going like you, it, you learning should be accessible to kids in a visual way but that doesn't mean that you aren't selective with what stays up on the wall you know so well, you, yeah sometimes you can fight that battle <laughs> yeah I know when I was in college that's when Debbie Diller's book came out um, yeah, spaces. classroom spaces spaces yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. there was that huge shift from like everything from Lakeshore like you had a bumblebee themed classroom mm -hmm. and we started shifting a little bit more um to having anchor charts on the wall but in college like my teachers were teaching us about anchor charts like they were this brand new thing. <laughs> and I don't think most teachers got instruction on like the perp. It's it's not just a poster you create. Like this right. is something you do with your kids. So this is a soapbox. It's anything to do with behavior. Um, oh, it's, oh yeah, it's huge to me too. But I do think it does have, it is relevant for behavior because stuff that's not, there's no point Then that kid didn't help create that room. That's part right. of the community, you know? And then when we're thinking about space too, like how much of your space is taken up with like a clip chart um, or things that are negative, you know, use that space as like nonverbal cues. I had on my easel, I had some like your five senses. Um, I don't know if you can hear my daughter. She just woke up from her nap. So if you hear a scream or a knock, that's Everly. Um, but it, it was like, my hands are safe. You know, my eyes are looking, my ears are listening up on my easel. And yeah. so I could easily just point to one of them. If one of my kids needed a reminder, like hands are in our lap. Right. And so instead of me having to say like, Liam, put your hands in your lap, I could use that. 
um, little poster, but that is such a better use of our space than like some farmhouse decor that we got at Hobby Lobby, you know? <laughs> I know I, I might bother some people with this. I, the farmhouse decor is beautiful for your home, but I don't completely understand it for a classroom because I don't think kids even get it. Well, that's what a lot of the stuff that we see on Instagram. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like color we know helps kids learn. Like you kind of like red is reading, you know, like we know that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, we know blank spaces help, but yeah, like shiplap does not <laughs> make your reading comprehension like better. Yeah. <laughs> and no, no shame if you, if that's your, if that's like your favorite thing, it's just, that's not maybe the most essential place. If you've got to choose where to put your time and space, maybe don't choose that. Like if you've got a very limited amount. Yeah. And when you, you do have limited time and are you going to spend yeah. that time before the school year, like making that, or are you going to come up with like, you know, how are we going to have stronger relationships this year and things mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. So, okay. So then can you describe an approach that's effective for coaching teachers and classroom management? What would be a way that a coach could approach that work um, and really support a teacher to change? So I have a couple of them. The first one I think would be modeling. I, nothing frustrated more than when an admin would have suggestions for me about working with a student and they had never worked with that student. I was like, I don't want to hear your opinions. (laughs) Um, Even if what they were saying was spot on. So if you have a teacher who's struggling with classroom management, I think the very first thing as a coach you need to do is go in there and do a lesson mm-hmm. um, and one, get a handle on what's actually going on and then do some effective modeling on this is how we handle things respectfully, appropriately. Because I think that's just like we build relationships with kids in those moments, modeling and actually doing the hard work is how you can really build rapport with your teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the, the teacher that has the craziest classroom is the one that you should be in the most because one, sometimes things on the outside look really crazy, but it may actually be, that's a super functioning, well-functioning classroom. And when you get in there, you can see like, oh, she just has all of this stuff going on. And, and this is actually working really well for these kids. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell that by just what's going on in the hallway. Um, or for me, my hallway behavior was always a little bit off because they'd been sitting on the carpet and they had done a really good job. And so I did not care if they hopped down the hallway because they did what they needed to do. You know, like their learning time was awesome. And so I didn't need them to walk on the second square. Mm-hmm. But until a, an admin or a coach goes into that classroom, you're not really going to know. And then I think t- getting the data, like we talked about, coming in and helping teachers see what's really going on. And then the third thing I you know, I do think is helpful is if they have a student that they're just really struggling with, come in and just observe from the side and just observe their interactions and then meet with that teacher and be like, let's talk about it. Um, how can we make it better? And then the fourth thing is mentoring. Um, those kids in our class that just need a little bit of extra support. That's such a great way for coaches to get really involved is to come have lunch with them spend time with them, check in with them. You know, how, you know, what are your behavior goals this week? I always wanted someone else on campus to be able to be like a reward. So, um, you know, you just did a great job staying on task. Why don't you go see Miss Beltron for 10 minutes, you know, and help her make some copies or whatever. And so you're giving a teacher a break, you're building rapport, you're building rapport with that kid. Um, You know, it's kind of a win-win. So there are different schools of thoughts about modeling, and and I, I believe that modeling is very effective and, and supportive whenever teachers see you in the classroom with their actual kids. But one of the ideas that I've heard is that that kind of takes this power away from the teacher or takes like the authority in the classroom away from the teacher. But I feel like if you're going in and you're modeling a lesson, 
and you're just integrating behavior practices with that lesson. I don't feel like you're taking anything away. If yeah, you to, go in and chew the kids out. Right. Then yeah, you did take it away. Absolutely. Know? That's a problem. Um, and I think also when the teacher isn't prepared for it, um, one of my biggest pet peeves is like if we were walking down the hallway and another teacher came and reamed my kids, like yeah. that just oh makes that God. teacher look mean. That makes me look stupid. Right. Um, but when you have a conversation with the teacher, like, why don't I come in and see what's going on yeah. and, and even frame it differently? Like, don't call it modeling. Like you're not trying to be this model teacher. Like, right. let me come in and see what's going on. Um, and then you, you know, you sent me the questions over and that was one of the questions is how do we not take authority away? Oh, but yeah. for me, when we talk about our school, it's important that we tell our kids, like we are a school family. And even though I'm your teacher, most of the time. All the grownups in our school want what's best for us. Mm. Um, you know, they're my friends. They're people I talk to. We all work together. So, and that's just something they need to learn for life. Like, it's not always going to be one person that's going to tell you, like, they're, they're, it's bigger than that. Um, the community, the school community. Yeah. The village. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the more it happens, the less... Yeah, weird. shocking it needs to be yeah. and jarring. Um, and I think as coaches, it's super important that you're not always going into like the struggling teachers rooms. You're not always modeling for the new teachers, but it it just becomes like a this is just what we do. Right. Um, because I know in some of the schools I was at, if I had a coach come in and ask to model something, you know, my stomach would sink because I assumed that meant my principal said I wasn't doing it right instead yeah. of having this conversation of like, this is just what we do. Um, and it's super important that I'm in every classroom. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That should, but be that's also like create a culture. Yeah. Um, but that's also super hard. Cause I know that coaches have as much on their plate as teachers. Yeah, um, it, they do. And, but I do think that there's a place to find some kind of balance. So you say, okay, obviously I do need to be in these classrooms, but then you want to make yourself available to teachers who are just trying to grow. Right. And so, and everybody's just trying to grow, right? We're just all in yeah. different places and growing in different things. So if you do make yourself available and say you have a conversation with a teacher and maybe they're asking a question or you're planning something and you can offer at that time, Hey, I can come and do this in your classroom. If you want to see it, you know, what it looks like in action, I can work with your kids, you know, that would yeah. be something fun to do. So you want to create that balance where you are not just targeting classrooms that are maybe struggling in this area. You can, I mean, you, we're growing everybody. It's just like with your students. You don't not work with your kids right. who are reading above grade level. You work with all of your kids because your goal is to push everybody along. Right. So, so yeah, it's the same idea. So is there a difference between coaching a new teacher and an experienced teacher that you've in, in behavior management? Um, to me, it's not so much new and experience. It just really comes from like teachability and yeah. what place they're coming from. Yeah. You know, obviously if I was a coach, I would take a new teacher who was like eager to learn over a, an experienced teacher who really kind of knew what they were doing, but thought they knew everything. Yeah. Any teachers are the same, you know, everyone has their own background. Like I talked about, right. I think privilege plays a big role in behavior. Um, I have seen a lot of racial disparity, you know, depending on how long you've been teaching, how educated you are, it's really sad when you think about the way teachers respond um, to different races. And when we look at mm-hmm. the data, like how often, you know, black kids are getting sent to the office as opposed to white kids, but that's a really hard conversation to have. Um, so I don't know if it's easier to coach a new teacher or a hard, experienced teacher. I just know it's all hard and everyone has their own crap that they're dealing with. That is so true. And I, that's something that 
you know, I know that management, my first year was a real struggle and then things got better over time. But of course you always have, you have to figure something out every year. But my first year I was trying to do this approach that I learned in college and it was very constructivist, but not with like without the structure. And so it wasn't, I, I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine it in an effective way. So what I was doing was what I thought I was taught, but it was all very general what we were yeah. talking about, right? So I was implementing something that was incomplete. It didn't have the supports and the structure and the routines that kids needed to be successful. I was expecting that they could do more than they, they were able to do, uh-huh. you know? So that was very unsuccessful. And after that year, I was like, I just have to rethink everything, you know? And so I tried yeah. to keep that same sort of mentality, but with, but providing those structures and providing the supports and the routines and the expectations um, and being more consistent. I think that was an area that I struggled in at first was like, well, you know, you, t- you talk a lot about giving chances. Well, that's not really, I mean, chances, what does that mean? What is it that you're not doing when you're giving kids a chance? What do you, you know, what does it look like? So that was an area I really struggled in and it did take me time to, to improve in that area. But I think no one told me how to do it. Nobody showed up. Right. You know, I had to just look at my classroom and change things. But then some classrooms do not change because the responsibility is on the kids. Well, they can't do this. They can't do yep. that. They won't do this. And that can be very frustrating to hear as a coach. Super frustrating. Um, because one of the things that I say a lot is, and that I still just say a lot, the only person we can control in a classroom is ourselves. We have no yeah. control over anybody else in this room. All we can do is create systems and structures and supports so that kids know what is expected and hopefully do that a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, 51%. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So, you know, that's that's something that has always been really frustrating to me. And you're right, teachability, coachability is huge. I know for me, what I've seen is um, in a lot of experienced teachers, their classrooms are very well managed, but I wouldn't say they have strong relationships. I wouldn't say the kids feel safe. I wouldn't say, you know, actual like internal change is happening. And so that's a shift too. And like, you can walk by a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years and like, you know, her kids know where the pencils are. Um, they don't, I, you know, there's not a lot of huge, like acting out, but there's also not a lot of like effective true growth happening. Like her kids don't have a true growth mindset. And so I, that's why I just think it's not so much about new teachers and experience. It's just about what place they're coming from. Yes, absolutely. And I think the point that you make as well about our own backgrounds and understanding the way that we see race and the way that we interact and, and what expectations we have. And that is huge. And that's something that I feel like a school has to undertake the learning to do. Like, it's very difficult to do that one-on-one. Absolutely. School is not doing that work. So I think your whole school has to go, we're going to do a book study. We're going to do a video study. We're going to learn something together. And then you can start working with teachers in classrooms and, and, and applying that work. And helping and I, evaluate your own thinking. I think when you have a really sensitive subject like like that, it's almost always more effective, like you said, to do it all together instead of singling people out. Because the reality yes. is like we all have stuff to learn. Like yes. you know, we all come from our own background. And so there's no one who's like made it or who's got it. And so when we just approach it as like, let's all work on this together, as opposed to singling out those teachers. Right. Um, but, you know, the flip side is once that learning has happened, if you still have teachers who are not following through with that, that is a conversation that needs to happen. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And having those conversations can be stressful. So you really have to be prepared, you know, and I think, I mean, classroom management to me is one of the most difficult things to coach. 
It really is because it's so personal and it is so dependent on you and your personality and your background. Sure. And even just the amount of information you can perceive at one time. Well, in every class, like one class might need something so different than the next class. Um, You know, there's just, yeah. Like reading, like we know what it, like we know that round rod of a reading does not work. We know guided reading does, (laughs) but like with classroom management, it's just harder. Yes. Because every kid needs something different. There's no magic bullet, but there are some basic things you can put into place as a campus, at least on a campus level. And then you can work with individual teachers to make adjustments to those absolutely practices yeah one little caveat I did want to say um you know you'd asked about how coaches can support and I talked about coaches being mentors what I would caution is coaches ever being um like a place of consequence for kids um I feel like that that role I understand as the principal like there needs to be a space a space when kids are truly just not being safe but I would think the role of the coach needs to be more of like a mentor who can walk beside the kid um, and who can really talk through things, you know, and if there is something that's happened that needs to be addressed, absolutely. If that coach has a relationship with the kid, like let's work through it. But right. I don't see your role being best utilized as like a consequence. Right. Uh, yes, I agree. And that's something we see like counselors have to fight against that. all Yeah. The time their administration and coaches as well you know that's not my my role is not is to not punish that is not my job here but yeah it, it does sometimes happen that you're put in those positions and it's really difficult yeah so if coaches only walk away with one idea from this episode what would it be um treat teachers the way you want them to treat your kids um you know expect or like assume the best of them always just like we want teachers to assume the best of their kids do the same thing with their students um think about the interactions you're having and if if you had a kid in your class and they got one interaction a week and it was typically like a feedback um that's not going to be a teacher they're really going to trust. So making sure you're balancing those interactions and having positive interactions way more often than you're having negative, which is really hard because it might be really time consuming. (laughs) But yeah. And sometimes without that though, I don't. Yeah. Without that, you're not going to be able to, you can't provide support in a classroom where the teacher hates your guts. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And there's no trust there. Yeah. Um, That would be, and then the, the only other thing is like, just treat your kids the way you want your kids to be treated? Like, do you want your kid's teacher to say that to them? Do you want to drive by your school and see your kids sitting out at recess? Yeah. Um, probably not. Then we asked, I asked, my principal asked a teacher that once, would you like your child to be spoken to that way? And the teacher insisted, yes, I would. If she's doing something wrong, they should tell her she's doing something wrong. And so sometimes the way we see yeah. it is so sure, awesome. sure. true at all, by the way. <laughs> that was not true at all. I, I see well, that. Um, the way we see ourselves is so inaccurate that maybe video would help because sometimes we don't have any free. Yeah. Well, and it's like, if you were in a faculty meeting, you would never want your principal to be like, right. put that up now. You know, yeah. like that would never be. Right. People just don't see it. Um, yeah. yeah I, tempting. You can't do it and you won't do it because they're an adult, right? You don't do it to mm-hmm. adults. But we say things to kids that we would never say to adults. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think just being available, like I talked about, and and making behavior management as much of a part of the trainings that you give yeah. as any other, you know, academic subject so that it is something that teachers feel comfortable coming to you with and that it, I think every year it's, to me, it's becoming 
more important. Um, our kids need more from us every year, at least from my experience. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Um, but it, it has to become a part of the conversation now when we're planning the beginning of the year, when we're planning academic lessons, like, okay, now what are we going to do to build classroom community this week? What are we going to do to get parent buy-in? Um, you know, and so just being a part of those conversations. Yeah, I think that's great. I used to have a principal when I first started and she, her big focus was community. And she said, I want you the first six weeks to build routines and community. That's what I want you to do. But we didn't know how to do it. We were not, yeah. we were brand new teachers. It was like a whole horde of us that were brand new teachers. It was like 15 of us. And so we were just kind of figuring it out as we went. So we tried a lot of things that were ineffective. But if we yeah. had a coach who could say, this is what we mean when we say community. This is what well, like, you don't just say like, go get better at teaching math, you know, but it's like, that's what we do to teachers with behavior. Absolutely. You really need to work on your behavior. Okay. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. I would like to, I would that. love some help. That's the other thing. Like as coaches, remember, there's probably no teacher who's like, man, I love chaos or man. I love feeling guilty at the end of the day that I yelled at that kid, you know, like, no one likes that feeling. And so just remembering that and sure. just coming alongside them. Yeah. And then sharing your own, maybe your own shortcomings is a way to start helping people who feel comfortable to say that. Yes. I yeah. like I've lost my temper before. I have a short fuse, you know, I've had these challenges too. So you're not the only person who is struggling with this. That's okay. You know, that you're yeah. in the way you talk about kids, like, um, we're not going to just say, Oh, he's defiant or, Oh, he drives me up the wall or, um, oh, he has ADD. Like when yeah. we say those things in RTI meetings, when we say those things, you know, all of a sudden that really bleeds into the way we respond to those kids. Yeah. So coaches need to be hugely aware of the way that they talk about kids yeah. um, and make sure they're being, you know, and reframing things in team meetings because team meetings can kind of become like happy hour and it's just like a free yeah. for all. Oh, and yeah. it's not okay to talk about kids that way ever. Yeah, that that's, I've, I've seen that a lot. And working on language and the way we talk about kids is an uphill battle because people do not hear. We, we've all said it. We've all said something probably at some point that we didn't hear, you know, what it sounded like. Oh, absolutely. And so I think people don't hear it and they don't even realize, even if you try to do so subtly, sometimes they don't even get, whenever you try to rephrase something they said in a way that's less, you know, rude or offensive or uh-huh. They don't always notice it. So sometimes we have to have a conversation about the language that we use about kids and just be Yeah. And I think, you know, we're this conversation's happening at a great time as we're thinking about moving into the next school year and just making that part of your norms. Um, just like, you know, we always had norms like we're not gonna have our phones out during this time, we're not gonna check email, but you know, we're gonna use positive language about our kids. I like making that. that as part of the year's expectations. That is a great idea. I like it's explicit, it's clear, and it gives you an opportunity whenever you start going off the rails to say, I'm noticing that we're really frustrated today. We're struggling when we're talking about our kids, but we want to make sure we're using positive language to talk about our kids. Yeah. And I think as a coach, maybe even slip up on purpose one so that you can like back up and be like, you know what? I really didn't handle that the right way. Cause it would really frustrate me if there was a coach every meeting who was saying that to me, if they weren't also like, being part of the conference, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's easy to say, you should really not talk like that about your kids whenever you don't yeah. to deal with kids right. all the time, like 24 seven. So yeah, that's completely, that's very true. Um, totally um, understandable. <laughs> yeah. well, okay. So how can people find you online so they can learn more or follow you and see how you Sure. Okay. So my website is teachingwithhaley.com, H-A-L-E-Y. 
And then from there, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram. My Instagram is super frustrating. I need to change it because right now it's just Haley M as a mouse O'Connor. Because when I started Instagram like 10 years ago, it was just my right. personal Instagram. Um, and then Facebook, I'm teaching with Haley O'Connor. So if you just look up like teaching with Haley, it should all pop up. Mm-hmm. My email is Haley at teaching with Haley at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, support you, um, whatever I can to make this year most successful for you and your kids. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, we, I really enjoyed talking today. I think this is a really great topic and um, I appreciate you popping on. Of course. I can't wait to come back. Have yeah. a good day. Thank you. Yeah. And, the, and guys, be sure to jump in next week to hear episode 20, how to respond to a teacher who is angry with you. Because we've all been there. And, you know, I mean, I hope you haven't been there, but you probably have. <laughs> so I'm going to share some, some strategies to help you get through that situation um, in a way that you will feel proud of and good about. So that sounds awesome. I'm going to tune into that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they might even work on your husband. I don't know what works for toddlers. You know, I actually listened to an audio book called How to Talk So That Little People Will Listen. And I really liked it. And I need to listen to it again because I listened to it before Annie was even two. And she was like one. And I was like, what am I going to do to talk? You know, how do I communicate? And um, so I listened to it and I loved it. But I need to go back and listen to it again. But that's my plug for that book. It's actually a good one that you could use a lot of the strategies in teaching as well. So awesome. that might work. So, all right. Happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.